Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this episode, I continue my discussion with Freshworks about employee engagement during the scale-up process. You have to sort of narrow down the top two challenges or uh, if they had to revisit this growth phase, right? Doing what could have sort of uh, helped them prepare the organization for them to bring in all these people? Is it more about uh, being clear on what their approach of first principles about uh, mm-hmm. what is okay and what is not okay. In, in other words, this is what we call as culture. Or mm-hmm. is it, so in, in, in different ways, uh, there are three layers, which in my personal experience where I've, I've felt there can be challenges. One is operational. Second is strategic, where you and I don't have alignment on what the company should be doing. The topmost comes to be like people, right? So people in terms of uh, hey, do I basically trust you on this decision? Uh, can we work together? Uh, so where do you think in this case the challenge was? So was it on the people layer? Was it on the alignment on strategy? Or was it more on operational way of working things? Really, uh, that, that's a great question and comment. Um, all three layers had problems um, for sure. But I think the biggest challenges came from the leadership. So the, there was great positive movement on the lower levels of the hierarchy uh, in terms right. of managers and supervisors. But the, the C-suite, the executive leadership, um, there was so much inconsistency in terms of communication, so much inconsistency in terms of, of mission, values, culture. Um, Got it. That that people didn't, they, they, people were nervous constantly. Uh, and, and lower level managers were always worried about their jobs um, because they were getting conflicting information. Um, so I, I think to, to your first part of your question, what could they have done? What should they have done earlier? Um, basically, they shouldn't have waited until they had 2,000 employees you know, or more to bring someone like me in to help them. <laughs> Um, whether, whether they needed to bring someone in external, you know, an external person in or not, they needed someone, they they could have hired someone with that expertise to do it internally. And that would have been fine too, but, but they didn't address it early on. So what I would say to any organization from, even if you have five employees, you should be looking at engagement and satisfaction metrics, and you should be measuring it and you should be addressing those issues. Certainly as you grow, if you get up to 20, 50, 100 employees, you absolutely should be doing that. 
And when you get to the point where you have hundreds and thousands of employees, if you're not doing that, um, I can almost guarantee you're going to have major problems. Uh, just just the fact that they just the fact that they weren't doing that was a major um, was a major indicator of all the problems that they were facing. <laughs> Got it. Go Got ahead. It. Yeah. Was it more uh, engagement? Uh, measuring engagement is something which uh, is more of a lagging indicator, right? So in terms of a leading indicator, right? Uh, what do you think will be more foundational uh, in in doing something which which results in, like, say, better engagement? Is it the aspect of uh, as a uh, as as people call out like, like clarity of where we are going as a company and alignment on that, or is it more of psychological safety that hey uh, yes there are a lot of things that is ambiguous uh, in terms of the goal of where we are going because we are going behind certain opportunities which are not hundred percent figured out etc. But mm-hmm. uh, but hey you know what uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be affected by this, right? So that's the psychological yeah. safety zone, which yeah. so in each of these cases, the company could have taken either one of these stances, right? So uh, if I have to uh, uh, sort of go back to the company or if I'm the founder of the company, what do you think uh, I should have done more as a leading, uh, uh, something which impacts the leading indicator while I understand that, yes, I measure the engagement. I get to know that something is strong. But how can I be in a place where uh, I know that I'm working in a direction where the engagement is going to be good? Yeah, uh, great, great question. I mean, ultimately, we won't know until we measure, right? Until we do the analyses. Um, But there are basic principles that are pretty much universal in terms of... um, communicating expectations in terms of creating, like you referred to psychological safety, right? People want, people aren't going to be committed to an organization if they feel unsafe and they're not going to be creative and innovative if they feel like they're going to be punished for any little mistake they make, right? So they have to feel safe to try things. They have to feel safe to share their opinion. They have to feel safe. um, They have to feel that they trust their leaders because their leaders are proactively communicating with them, right? And so as organizations keep those basic principles and concepts in mind as they're going through those early scaling processes and simultaneously putting in, you know, again, thinking of outcomes, uh, identifying key metrics, productivity and performance metrics, uh, and then putting those things in place so they can start measuring them, then they, they can be proactive about looking at Uh, trends over time and understanding how things are shifting Um, at my university, for example, now we're, we're not a start, you know, we're not going through scale up. We're not a startup, you know, it's a different context, right? But at our university, for example, we're part of what's called um, the best colleges to work for um, survey. This is a a U.S. national survey that so many universities participate in similar to like what I described with the Gallup where organizations can participate they, they contribute their data to it, then they get reports back and they can see how they compare and they can track things over time. That's the same type of what we're doing at the university. Um, and we do it every year and we get our data back. Um, and so, you know, some, em- some employees at the university, some faculty, some staff 
are super skeptical about it because they don't see any change over time. They see problems that persist from year to year to year. And in some cases they dip, in some cases they go up a little bit. Um, but one of the questions that's included in that survey is do the employees trust that the management team will utilize the feedback from the survey data to make positive changes for the organization? And that one indicator, you know, I, I don't mean to call out my university, but that indicator at my university is not very strong, uh, meaning the common employee, the average employee doesn't really trust that leadership is going to do anything with the data. They're not going to do anything with the information. Um, now, I don't actually, personally, I don't think that's true. Personally, I think our leadership team does care about the data and that they are trying to make positive improvements. But if the average employee doesn't believe that, if they don't trust that, then it's, you're not going to have good outcomes. Got right? It. So that's, that's sort of an indicator which you get, which you sort of identify and then go back and at least start investing. Maybe it could be like a communication aspect, right? You're doing yeah. something, but people are still not feeling so, but so maybe you should be over communicating. That could also be the intervention is your point. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big believer in transparency and I'm a big believer in communication. And if you're going to err in terms of your communication strategy, if you're going to err, err on the side of over communication, um, because when, when there's not enough information or people perceive that there's not enough information, regardless of what the reality is, if people perceive it, um, they perceive a vacuum of information, they will start to fill the vacuum. They'll start to fill the void. They'll start to gossip. They'll start to share their own um, conspiracy theories. They're going to start, <laughs> they're going to fill in the gaps uh, that they feel are there. And usually it's not going to be in a positive way. Uh, usually it's going to only hurt the organization. So communicate, over communicate, be transparent, uh, engender and foster trust. These are all just really core elements that any organization is going to face, but particularly a, a, a rapidly scaling organization there's just so much uncertainty. There's so much um, um, concern that people have about, uh, about the situation. And there's so much constant change that's occurring in that environment that you have to take really proactive measures to, to develop that trust and to maintain it over Got time. It. Yeah, I think great, great okay. question. So, talking about uh, you know, the example that, you know, that comes so it seemed like the leaders were in denial uh, of, you know, uh, developing a culture, maintaining it, and uh, you know, uh, bringing in employment engagement and satisfaction measures. Uh, so is that a problem that you know you encounter uh, or you have encountered while working with various uh, companies, or is ignorance a problem, or or uh, they just don't care? Great question. And I would say yes, all of the above. Um, honestly, it depends on the organization. It depends on the leader. Um, but it's one of the things that, you know, when I, when I'm, I, I teach consulting, for example, at my university. So when I'm teaching students how to do consulting engagements, one of the things we talk a lot about is creating leader buy-in, um, breaking down um, resistance and defense mechanisms, because some leaders, you know, if someone brings you in, they hire you to come in, they obviously believe in you, right? They hired you. Um, but that doesn't mean that other people in the leadership team feel the same way. And there will be resistance. 
Um, and so you have to work with the, with um, the team to help reduce that resistance. I've experienced some level of resistance with pretty much every organization I've ever worked with. Uh, and so you just have to, to understand that that will be there. But as you communicate with them, as you, um, as you work collectively with them, jointly with them to create your approach to understand the timetable, the deliverables, the types of things you're going to be working on, you can help to break down that resistance. Now, at the particular organization I was describing, absolutely, um, there was resistance. Uh, there, there was ignorance. Um, there were people who felt like they knew what to do, but clearly didn't. Um, so that's a problem. So some, some kind of intellectual hubris involved sometimes with leaders who don't want to be told um, what a more effective approach might be even when what they're doing, there's clear track record of failure. I mean, there, there's ego involved so that you have to deal with that delicately. I mean, there's lots of things that you have to really consider. Um, and I don't, I don't claim to have the answer to all of those. You know, I, I'm not going to get it right all the time when I'm working with organizations. Um, and no matter what I do, it seems, no matter how much I experience, it, it never ceases to amaze me how new things will come up that I've never experienced before. So uh, it, ju it just also draws, um, it, it comes back to my point earlier that you, a one size fit, fits all approach just doesn't work, right? You just, you have to take every new situation afresh. You have to, there, there are certain commonalities, there are certain um, principles that apply in most situations but you have to go in intellectually curious every single time you go in to face this challenge within an organization um, because there's going to be unique challenges. There's going to be unique resistance. There's going to be unique um, issues that have to be faced. So it seems like a scene of chaos uh, at this particular company that you're talking about. So what were the, like, the top three or five key steps that you took to ensure, uh, you know, to bring in uh, some sort of semblance uh, yeah, well, one of the reasons why I'm sharing this particular example is because we never got past the chaos. Um, and, and I see that in large part my failure, you know, as I was dealing with the leadership team. Um, and so what the, the final outcome that I, I hadn't shared yet was one day I, I wake up, you know, I'm, I'm thinking it, it's a Monday, right? So we just had the weekend. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, what, what are, what are we going to do this week with this organization? How am I going to help them? And I wake up, uh, I, I look at my email, and I see uh, an email from the chief HR officer at the organization, who, by the way, fully believed in what we were doing, right? He, he was fully bought in. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he told me, he alerted to me, alerted me to the fact that the company had just filed for bankruptcy, um, that they just laid off most of their employees, and all this had happened in an emergency decision-making session of the board over the weekend. And so people were showing up to work Monday morning with the doors closed with a sign up saying, you know, you don't have a job, right? That's the environment. So chaos led to complete failure uh, in this situation. Um, they went through title nine bankruptcy. It, you know, it was just one of those situations where everything about it fell apart, uh, which was incredibly unfortunate. And I think in part, that was because they were frankly trying to address super deep problems too late in the game. Part of it was because uh, even while I'd been working with them for a year and a half, there still hadn't coalesced a 
common commitment amongst the leadership team into what we were trying to do. So there's still infighting, backstabbing, and internal politicking happening. That was a problem, right? And ultimately, we just didn't get the traction for what everything we were trying to do. There were key leaders that were bought in, and then there was a lot of buy-in down the line, but there were too many um, key stakeholders at, at the senior level who were secretly undermining things that ultimately it wasn't successful. Um, so that unfortunately was the outcome. I wish I could say it differently. I wish I could say it was complete chaos and we took these five steps and in you know, another two years we cleaned things up and everything was better, but it wasn't. Um, and it's, it's a cautionary tale uh, for organizations. There, there was a local um, company uh, here in Utah. We, we have what's called Silicon Slopes. Um, so you know, everyone's heard of Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Well, we, Utah uh, along the Wasatch Front is also a tech hub and for entrepreneurial tech startups. Um, and so we have what's called Silicon Slopes. And there was a, a local um, tech firm startup that had gone through rapid scaling um, and seemingly everything was fine. And then all of a sudden they announced mass layoffs, um, just kind of out of the blue, like nobody in the industry saw it coming. Nobody, you know, anyone outside of the executive levels at the organization didn't see it coming. And they just had, they laid off like half of their workforce, um, or like almost overnight. Um, and so when those types of things happen, um, you know, they're cautionary tales. And, and what every organization needs to be thinking about are what are the mechanisms, how are you creating a sustainable organization? What are the mechanisms you're putting in place to help the organization be successful? How are you communicating with your employees? How are you investing in them? How are you, how are you measuring things like motivation, engagement, productivity, satisfaction, um, but more than just the measurement, how are you utilizing the data from that measurement to reinvest, to reinvest in your employees and how are you communica communicating back to them, right? And I think that's what has to happen in any organization really, but particularly in rapidly scaling up organizations. Um, otherwise, there's just so many pitfalls uh, along that process of growth um, that I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be the rule, not the exception that you're gonna see failure. Um, when, when you have uh, just, just the inherent problems with that kind of rapid scale up. So um, some other questions uh, that I thought I would just really quickly address as we're running short on time. Uh, how can scaling up uh, a company to measure engagement and satisfaction, how, how can you go about doing that? And really it can start super simple. Uh, you don't even have to do a formal survey. It could be informal discussions and conversations um, and if you do do a survey, use, use existing technology that you have that's free, you know, Google Sheets is fine. You could use SurveyMonkey, right? <laughs> like there's lots of ways to do it. It's not complicated, but th what the more important thing is that you do something, that you start early and that you be consistent. And then over time, you can start to build your capacity and the complexity um, of what you're doing uh, so that you can have even deeper insights. I think that's just really important. Start simple, be consistent, develop it over time. Um, what can HR leaders do uh, in terms of thinking about employee engagement uh, and satisfaction? Uh, what can they do to, to create comprehensive systems within their organization? Again, from the beginning, 
everyone needs to be bought in that this is an important thing that they need to be doing. Um, and again, if, if you're, if you're, if it's a new tech startup and you have uh, founders who are really more on the, the technology side, they're good coders or whatever, they may not know or care about this stuff, which is why you need someone on the team early who does understand the importance of this, get the buy-in, create the feedback loops, get, start collecting the data and, and start to have the discussions and the conversations about how you're going to invest and reinvest in your employees to keep them engaged and motivated so they can be productive. Uh, how often should you measure? I would say at a minimum, you do it yearly, right? If you have some sort of a systematic approach, um, at least yearly to track trends over time across divisions, uh, across domains, across direct reporting lines, those sorts of things. But I'm also a huge believer in more continual um, feedback loops. And so you, you, it, if it's, if it's a big, long survey that you're trying to do or big, long interviews that you're trying to do, it's not feasible to do it you know, constantly. You can't do it monthly. You can't do it quarterly even. That's just too much time and energy. Um, but if it's a fairly simple approach that you're taking, then yeah, collect frequent data. Um, give regular, consistent feedback and frequent feedback to people. And, that, and, and employees will value that. And especially if they see how you're utilizing the, the data that's being collected to make good, positive improvements. And if you're communicating those improvements back to the employees. Uh, another couple, uh, another few questions. Uh, what should you do if you find that your measures are not actually giving you the desired results? This is the, the assessment challenge that every organization faces. Uh, I, I honestly don't know of an organization that isn't trying to do better at this. Um, and what it comes down to is you, you always have to be thinking about what your outcomes are that you, that you want and what are the metrics that you're measuring um, to, to know if you're getting to those outcomes and is there clear alignment? And when there's not clear alignment, you have to tweak and you have to um, shift over time. And that means you have to be looking at the data on a regular basis. There's, there's no substitute for consistency here. Um, you need to be doing basic analyses to measure the validity of what your, uh, of your metrics and the desired outcomes. And, and as I mentioned just a moment ago, you also have to be thinking about the utility of what you're doing. Um, because, you know, I wear a couple hats, like on one, on the one hand, I do consulting work, right. And everyone's worried about time and cost. On the other hand, I am a professor and I do academic research. And so when I'm doing something in terms of academic research, I have to, I, I necessarily have a different lens in terms of utility because there's a certain rigor that is necessary in order for me to do research that I can then publish in academic journals. But when I'm with an organization, working with an organization, they don't necessarily care about that same level of scientific rigor. They want something that will give them good outcomes. Um, and so the utility equation is different. And I, and I usually, I'm not going to be successful in getting an organization to commit the time and resources to do the type of analyses that I would want to do to publish in a peer-reviewed academic journal if that makes sense. So just always be thinking about the, the utility uh, equation. Uh, what, what's the cost involved with what you're trying to do with your measurement? 
uh, versus the benefit and the outcome mm -hmm. for the organization. Uh, do, your, do your approaches to measuring employee engagement and satisfaction, do they depend on different contexts? And the short answer is absolutely it does. Uh, I, I referred to this earlier in the model that I shared. Um, size of company and headcount, geographical um, location, uh, things like expansion, funding stage, um, economic conditions, geopolitical, socioeconomic. I mean, there's so many different um, contextual factors that lead into, you know, what your analysis is going to show and, and how it's going to impact your organization. So absolutely, you need to be thinking about benchmarking with, with your industry, benchmarking with your geography when possible. And you're doing, if you have someone in the organization that has the, the, um, the quantitative competencies to do the data analytics and the statistical analyses, you certainly should try to build in those types of context variables into your assessment models that you're going to be building over time. But that, that starts to get into a lot of complexity. And, and I will acknowledge that most organizations don't have the expertise to deal with that kind of complexity in their modeling. Um, and so if that's the case for you, you know, if, if, if you are a smaller organization or you don't have the capacity or you don't have the time for someone to devote to that kind of level of rigor uh, in your analysis, that's okay. Uh, you can still start simple, expand your capacity over time. Uh, and to the extent possible, even if it's just a matter of basic descriptive dis statistics, benchmarking across industries, across geographies, across divisions, that will still be very helpful. And you, it'll help you, you can still start to identify some, uh, some uh, patterns in what you're seeing. Uh, and so I would absolutely recommend that every organization try to do that to the extent possible. Um, the, another question, would the fundamentals be any different uh, for a 100-member company versus a 500-member company or a 1,000 or 10,000, right? Um, the answer is, of course, again, context matters. So size matters and how you're going to be going about doing it. And, and I should add that that, that influences your um, utility equation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to collect data in, you know, with 100 people uh, in terms of opportunity costs, in terms of time involved in, in collecting the data, running the analyses and everything. Um, it's one thing for 100 people versus 500 or 1,000. Uh, so the utility equation shifts over time, but also the complexity of the HRIS, HRIS system that you need to use. And while I might use a Google form to collect data when I have 20 people on the team, you know, when I have 100 or 1,000 people, I'm not going to be using a Google form anymore, right? So now I need to have more um, robust um, technologies that I'm using to facilitate the data collection and analysis and the feeding back of the data. Um, but I do think the fundamentals tend to be the same in terms of the key questions that I outlined earlier and kind of the steps to measuring engagement, the types of questions that you need to be asking um, uh, and thinking about the metrics and the outcomes. All those fundamentals are the same, but the complexity of the system that you're going to put in process in the, the complexity of the system that you're going to put in place and the processes that support it, um, those will get more complex as you as you scale up and as you have larger organizations. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, any any other types of follow-up questions to these that you have? I, I have one question. 
so uh, you know typically the founders of companies i mean you can call it call them as the first hr leader of their own organization right uh, so uh, and you also mentioned at the beginning of the presentation of the presentation that uh, a manager and uh, you know as any supervisor at any level they they also perform uh, hr functions i'm assuming uh, you know most organizations do not think of it this way uh, uh, so my question is how can startup founders and can prep themselves to do these hr functions and how can hr is work at these levels uh, to ensure that you know uh, they have uh, employment uh, engagement and satisfaction measures uh, you know, going and working well for the company. Uh, great, great questions. Um, it's it's tough if if you don't have founders that understand the necessity of this. That hopefully someone will join the team early enough that does recognize it, even if they don't have the expertise, they recognize the importance. That then they can advocate for investing in it whether it's bringing in a consultant, hiring another person that has a specialty, whatever. Um, so, I mean, getting that buy-in early is important and it's hard when you don't have it represented in the founders. Um, and there's no easy answer to that. Uh, if they, when people don't know what they don't know, then they're not going to invest in learning about something that they didn't even know was a gap, right? So that, that's, that's part of the problem. Um, but if people do know it's important, but they know, and they also know that they don't have the expertise, they don't necessarily need to hire a consultant or bring in a full-time person to do that work. Um, there are ways they can train themselves and there's increasingly more avenues to do that. I mean, things like LinkedIn learning has so many great resources. Um, there's, I mean, there's so many professional, um, uh, resources on YouTube, Khan Academy, free resources that are available all over the place. Webinars like this, right, that companies put out. There's so many opportunities for people to get an understanding of um, of what's important, you know, to run the various aspects of, aspects of the organization to upskill uh, in, you know, in, in terms of the people elements of the organization and having an employee-centric organization. So if, if a leader recognizes there's a gap, there's lots of avenues. Um, there, you know, I'm thinking of like uh, the Society for Human Resource Management. If, if you don't have a large enough organization to justify having an HR function, having an HR person, you know, doing that function, there are so many resources with, um, with organizations like the Society for Human Resource Management or the, the HR Certification Institute or uh, World at Work or, I mean, there's so many organizations that provide content, that provide resources, that provide templates, um, that provide trainings to help leaders um, do this, right? Uh, when they're small businesses or when they're scaling up. Right. Kendall, uh, you have any questions? Not much, Vidya. I think Jonathan uh, pretty much covered uh, most of the things in this presentation. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me. I... Oh, go ahead. No, please, please go ahead. Let me just wrap things up then. Um, 
with two final main thoughts, okay? Um, when I think about an employee-centric organization, when I think about an organization that truly values its human capital, I think of how we lead our organization. And years ago, uh, I, I created this model. I mean, no, there's nothing about this model that's like uniquely innovative. Um, you can find elements of this in lots of other places, right? But I was just sitting down one day thinking about how do we understand leadership styles? How do we understand how they influence organizations? And I was trying to think of a kind of a generalized way of understanding the, 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 uh, the connections, right? And for me, it comes down to um, intellectual humility. It comes down to an attitude of lifelong learning. And it comes down to uh, leaders recognizing the value of their employees and be being willing to support and lead them. Uh, by serving them. So I have this as a foundational, a foundational core of my own leadership philosophy is servant leadership and the intersection of leadership with service, um, where, where a founder, a manager, a C-suite executive, that they don't see themselves above the other employees, but they, they recognize the innate value of every employee, um, the unique value they bring to the table, and then they're going to support them and help them and, and, so they can leverage that value uh, to help the organization. And when that's the mentality, it leads to really great things. Um, so what you see here with kind of this understanding of a foundational approach to servant leadership is then if we have intellectual humility as leaders, then we're constantly self-reflecting and we're constantly trying to better understand ourselves, our own motivations, our own drivers. But like I mentioned earlier in the presentation, we can't just assume that what we want is what other people want, or we can't just assume the way we understand things are the ways that other people are going to understand things. And so we also need to proactively try to better understand other people that we lead and serve. We need to break down our personal biases, our both our implicit and explicit biases, our prejudices, and we need to better understand the people we work with. Uh, and when we do that, it's this feedback loop, right? The more I understand about others, the more I understand about myself, the more I understand about myself, the more I understand about others. And that helps me lead better. Um, but there's also gaps in how we, in the skills and abilities, the capabilities and competencies that we have. So we have to proactively seek to fill those gaps by developing those skills and abilities. We can do that through trainings. We can do that through working with coaches and consultants. We can do that through higher education or informal ways of education. But if we seek lifelong learning, then we will continually be able to develop our skills and abilities. But just learning about something isn't enough. We, I can't just take a class. You know, I can't just do a Khan Academy course or do a LinkedIn learning or whatever, and then all of a sudden be a better leader. Um, I have to apply it. And it's through the, the process of applying it through my leadership and service of others that then I continually will get that feedback that you see in the outside feedback loops that come back to my self-understanding and my understanding of others. And I, that should be a, a, a never-ending process. Uh, any good leader is going to continually be going through this process and developing themselves. And when you look at the great organizations and you look at the great leaders um, who run those organizations, this is what they do. Um, this is what they're constantly doing. And it, and it comes back to them being committed to the purpose of the organization, being committed to their employees uh, and wanting to help every employee 
fulfill their human capital capacity, to fulfill their personal potential. Um, it's that commitment, you know, coupled with intellectual humility that allows organizations to be innovative and to continually thrive. Uh, so that's something that I wanted to take some time to mention. But I and I hope this would be the attitude that any founder would have, that any um, any organizational leader would have, but particularly while they're scaling up, because they're going to be dealing with new problems and issues and challenges that they've never even thought of before, that they've never even conceived. They, and they don't know what they don't know. And so if they're not proactively trying to continually learn and grow, they're going to they're gonna miss things. They're going to miss major things. Uh, and ultimately, like in the example I gave, it was chaos and it, it fell apart. And eventually it, it, it turned into one of these, um, one of these, uh, these cautionary tales of, of what can happen when you have people driven by their ego, people not being willing to check themselves and to try to work together. And um, that's ultimately what happened in, in the example I shared uh, and why they weren't successful. Finally, I'll end, uh, this will be the last main point. How do we get out of our functional silos in our work and as we lead others? This also pertains specifically to rapid scaling up, uh, particularly startups. Um, you know, we, you have founders that are a mile deep in their expertise. That's why they, they've come up with some new product or service, some new idea, particularly in the, in the tech industry. You know, for, for them to have some new idea that's going to really be valued in the market, they, they're going to have to have ex a, a lot of expertise. Uh, but often that expertise is a mile deep and an inch wide. Um, and there's need for that kind of expertise, but there's also need for a breadth of expertise. Um, and so while I'm not, you know, sometimes we think of generalists as kind of like a mile wide and an inch deep, that's not necessarily helpful either. You know, you, you need to have a combination. So maybe what I'm advocating for is rather than a mile deep and inch wide or a mile wide and an inch deep, maybe we need to have teams that are built of people who have a combination of an interdisciplinary um, approach, um, breaking free of functional silos where they can understand the holistic nature of the business, all the core different functional areas with enough functional expertise that they can make good decisions. So maybe, maybe they're a hundred yards wide and a hundred yards deep rather than a mile wide and an inch deep or whatever, right? Does that make sense? Um, the, the bottom line is while expertise is important and you do need certain experts to drive innovation, you also need collaboration. Uh, and when people get stuck in their silos, collaboration isn't happening and uh, people aren't talking uh, and getting outside of themselves and getting outside of their own expertise and their own understanding. Most new innovations happen not because someone is a genius and comes up with the, the new thing that's going to change the world. It usually happens because you get two smart, intelligent people who have different areas of expertise that talk to each other and see a new connection that nobody previously had seen. It's those new connections that are the innovations. And, and then, then you build out those connections um, to, for the new startup adventure, right? Um, so that's more of what we need. And for organizations to scale, they need to work closely together and they need to collaborate well together. Um, so that's what I would advocate for generally is find a way to break free of our silos, foster a cult, 
foster a leadership style of servant leadership and foster an organizational culture of, um, of knowledge sharing, of, of uh, innovation and being employee centric. And I think when organizations can do that, that will lead to more um, long-term sustainable growth within the organization. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.